two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you once again, Alex, and thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Cole. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. Now, over the course of the show, we've talked about a lot of movie adaptations of other sources. Most of the movie adaptations we've talked about have been from novels, although there have been a few movie versions of nonfiction books, a couple movie versions of plays that we talked about, a few movie versions of short stories. We did a whole series of episodes of English language remakes of non-English language films, which are adaptations, of course. And we even did an episode of movies adapted from record albums. And I would like to think that what all of those movies that we movie adaptations that we've talked about in previous episodes have in common is this. No matter how much those movies added or changed or cut out from the source material they were adapting, I would guess that all those movie adaptations were trying their best and for the most part I'd say succeeding at honoring the spirit of the original source material. Even movies that cut out a lot from their source material, like the Mambo Kings, which we discussed way back in episode five, yeah, I, I was believe. gonna say that was a single digit episode. <laughs> and um, Stage Door which we talked, which uh, changed the most, and which we talked about an episode uh, 12. Hmm. You know, all of those movies, I think, were trying to capture the spirit of the original work. That is decidedly not the case with the two movies that we're talking about today mm-hmm. in this episode we're calling subversive adaptations. And those movies are from 1955, Kiss Me Deadly, directed by Robert Aldrich, and from 1997, Starship Troopers, directed by Paul Verhoeven. Both of these movies were adapted from popular genre novels that were released in the 1950s. Neither movie did well initially with audiences or critics, but both movies have since developed a cult following among certain audience members and certain critics. And finally, and most importantly, while both these movies do keep a lot of plot elements from the novels they're adapted from, they not only change crucial details, they also change the meaning that behind both the original novels. And yes, I do mean political, and we will get into that as we discuss both movies, but for now, Claude is going to give us the plot description for Kiss Me Deadly. I sure am. The movie opens at night, and there is a woman who we later learn is named Christina Bailey, and who's played by Cloris Leachman in her film debut. 
is running down a desolate road wearing just a trench coat. She tries to flag down a few cars, but they just zoom on by. Finally, in desperation, she runs into the middle of the street, forcing the driver to swerve his car onto the soft shoulder of the road. That man is Mike Hammer, and he's played by Ralph Meeker. The woman is too out of breath to respond to him, so he tells her to just get into his car. As he drives down the road, the credits roll in reverse from top to bottom. Uh, Christina keeps looking behind the car as they roll, and as they approach a police roadblock, they hear the police ahead of them saying something about how they're looking for a woman who recently escaped from an asylum. Mike tells the officer that Christina is his wife, and they just wave him through. Mike stops at a service station uh, because the car is driving oddly. The mechanic finds and dislodges a branch that's caught in the front wheel. Christina uses the bathroom and then asks the mechanic, who, by the way, is played by Robert Sherman, to mail a letter for her. When Mike and Christina resume driving, she tells Mike that if they don't make it to her bus stop to remember me. Suddenly, a car pulls out and blocks the road, and three men get out. We cut to a woman screaming, and we see a pair of legs twitching. Although we don't see it, a little work with context clues tells us that Christina is being tortured to death. Mike is unconscious nearby, but when he awakens, he learns Christina is dead. He and Christina's body are put in his car and then pushed over a cliff. Mike is thrown clear, however, before the car crashes and burns. Mike wakes up in a hospital room to the faces of a nurse and his secretary, Velda Wickman, who is played by Maxine Cooper. The doctor enters and tells Lieutenant Pat Murphy, uh, played by Wesley Addy, uh, that he has five minutes. Pat asks Mike what happened, but Mike is not cooperating. Immediately after he's discharged, he's detained for questioning by the Interstate Crime Commission. Pat waits outside the hearing room while a pair of FBI agents uh, simultaneously ask Mike about his business and explain it to the audience. They're investigating Christina's death, it turns out. Mike deduces that Christina was involved in something big and he sees a potential business opportunity here. Mike takes a cab to see his mechanic, Nick, who's played by Nick Dennis. That's where he finds out that his car was totaled and that a couple of tough guys were looking for him at Nick's garage. Mike goes back home and approaches his apartment door slowly, expecting an ambush, but the place is empty. The phone rings and the answering machine picks up, and it's Velda. She tells him she's on her way over. Shortly after Velda arrives, Pat comes in on official business. He revokes Mike's private eye license and his gun permit. Mike asks Pat about a science reporter named Ray Diker, but Pat isn't talking. Later, on the way to visit Ray Diker, Mike realizes that he's being followed. Mike gets the drop on him and dispatches the guy, and then he proceeds to the apartment. Diker, incidentally, is played by Mort Marshall, and he's clearly afraid to say anything, but he does provide Mike with her last name and address. I should mention also, he's looking pretty beat up. Mike drives to Christina's last known address, where he gets the confidence of an old furniture mover, who gives Mike the current address of Christina's roommate, who left quite suddenly a couple of days earlier. The apartment manager uh, shows Mike the apartment, and there, Mike finds a volume of poetry by Christina Rossetti, and he takes it because of something that Christina had said to him during the car ride. Mike drives over to see the roommate, Lily Carver, who's played by Gabby Rogers, and she greets him with a gun, but they do talk. She tells Mike about Christina and the night she was taken away. In his apartment, Mike gets a phone call. He lets the answering machine screen the call, and a man's voice recounts the events up to date. Mike picks up the phone to talk to the stranger. He's told if he forgets about everything that's happened, he will be rewarded. 
The next morning, there's a brand new convertible parked in front of the building, but Nick sees it first and gets in, hoping to drive it around the block before Mike gets there. Just in time, Mike comes out and tells Nick not to start the car. Sure enough, it's wired to explode on startup. He finds and removes the bomb, but then Mike tells Nick to drive slowly over to the shop to find the second bomb, which is set to go off at highway speed. Mike asks Nick to see if he can find out who planted the bombs. Mike stops at Velda's apartment to tell her that he appears to have stumbled into something much bigger than the usual divorce racket. Velda tells Mike that Diker called and left two names and two contacts. The two names are Leopold Kowalski and Harvey Wallace, and the contacts are Nicholas Raimondo and Carmen Trivago. Velda tells Mike that Kowalski was a pro fighter, but she had nothing on Raimondo other than they both knew Christina, and now they're both dead. Mike questions Harvey Wallace, who's played by Struther Martin, at home while he and his family are eating dinner. After some verbal sparring, Wallace finally admits that Kowalski was pushed in front of his truck and killed. Next on Mike's visiting list is the gym where Kowalski trained. He sees an old friend and trainer, Eddie Yeagers, played by Juano Hernandez. When Mike asks about Lee Kowalski, Eddie's pleasant demeanor sobers up immediately. He tells Mike he has <clears throat> forgotten. Two men who we later learn are Charlie Max and Sugar Smallhouse, who are played respectively by Jack Elam and Jack Lambert, told him that if he said anything about Kowalski, he would be killed. Mike calls Pat at police headquarters and asks who Max and Smallhouse work for, and he's told that their boss is named Carl Ivello. At the Avello home, Max and Smallhouse are playing gin, and Ivello, who's played by Paul Stewart, is sitting by the pool having a drink and playing solitaire. Mike arrives in his new car, and Ivello's half-sister, Friday, who's played by Marion Carr, is right behind him in her vehicle. Friday is, mm, let's call it very friendly. She gives him a great big kiss, and then she introduces herself. They go into the house, and then they have a drink, and she sends him to a cabana to put on a bathing suit. Ivello recognizes Mike and sends Charlie and Sugar to the cabana. Mike cold-cocks Sugar, and Charlie is so surprised, he just bolts. Ivello has Mike brought into the house, and as they talk, Ivello admits to placing the explosives in Mike's new car, acknowledging that they keep underestimating him. But again, Mike is warned, play ball or die. Mike drives over to see Carmen Trivago, who is played by Fortunio Bonanova. Like all his other leads, this one is scared. He tells Mike, I know nothing. But he does let it be known that whatever it is, it is small and can be hidden. That evening, he returns to see Lily Carver. She's hiding on the stairs, and she tells Mike the tough guys came again, so she hid in the basement. He decides to take her back to his apartment. Meanwhile, Nick has done a little investigating about the car bomb, so that when Mike drops by, he tells him, I've got some information for you. But Mike still needs to secure Lily Carver at his place, so he tells Nick he'll be back to talk. Unfortunately, after Mike leaves, Nick crawls under a car to work, and a man we never see releases the jack, crushing Nick to death under the car. Mike gets Lily to his apartment, tells her to lock the door, don't answer the phone, and when he drives back to Nick's garage and finds another mechanic, Sammy, holding Nick's dead hand and sobbing. Mike leaves when he hears a police siren. Mike drives to Velda's apartment, and they kiss, and she asks, what kind of trouble are you in this time? He tells her Nick is dead. She gives Mike another lead, Dr. Soberin. The next day, Mike stops at a nightclub and gets very drunk. The bartender wakes him up and says, 
they got Velda. Mike drives back to the gas station and talks to the attendant. He asks the attendant if he remembers who the letter was supposed to go to. The attendant tells him, yeah, he got curious and looked. He said it was addressed to some joker named Mike. So Mike returns to his office and opens the letter, and it only says, remember me. However, Charlie Max and Sugar Smallhouse are also there to greet him. This time it's Sugar who knocks Mike out. They take Mike to a beach house in his own car. Mike makes a run for it when he gets the chance, but Charlie and Sugar catch him and beat the hell out of him for his attempt. He wakes up tied to a bed face down. A man tells Mike he's going to die, but he can save Velda. The man drugs Mike with sodium pentothal, then leaves the bedroom. Then Carly Velo comes in to question him, but gets nothing. All Mike can do is mutter. Later, Mike wakes up in the room alone. He manages to work one hand free from the ropes. He calls out, and Carl returns. He lures Carl over and knocks him out. Then Mike pretends to be Ivello and calls Sugar in to kill Mike. Sugar enters the dark room and stabs his own boss, thinking it's Mike. Then Mike kills Sugar and escapes. When Mike returns home, Lily Carver is there and she's dressed. Mike picks up a book of poetry and reads the sonnet, Remember Me. He gets a clue that something may have been inside of Christina, so they go to the coroner's office. The coroner, Doc Kennedy, who's played by Percy Hilton, is found, has found a key, but he wants a lot of money to turn it over. Mike pays him, but the doctor holds out for more. Mike reciprocates by smashing his hand in a desk drawer in order to get the key, which has HAC stamped on it. So he drives over to the Hollywood Athletic Club. Mike has to slap the attendant around to get him to cooperate, but the attendant tells him it's a locker key and it belongs to Nicholas Raimundo. Inside Raimundo's locker is a leather-covered box that Mike notices is very hot to the touch. He opens it slightly and there is an intense light shining from it. No, it's not Marcellus Wallace's soul, but it does burn his wrist. He puts the box back and he tells the attendant not to touch it. When Mike returns to the car, Lily Carver is gone. At his apartment, Pat and three policemen are waiting for him. Pat demands he turn over the key, but Mike turns him down, citing all the people who died on his watch. But when he mentions Lily Carver, Pat says, well, Lily was killed over a week earlier. Ah, uh, wait a minute. Who's Mike been protecting the last couple of days? Then Pat notices the radiation burn on Mike's wrist. Without another word, Mike gives Pat the key. After the police leave, Mike calls the Hollywood Athletic Club, but there's no answer. We see the locker is broken open, the box is gone, and the attendant is dead. That evening, Mike makes another call on Ray Diker. He gets another name, William Mist, who is the owner of the Mist Gallery of Modern Art. Mike breaks in, but, make, but Mist takes a handful of sleeping pills, which were prescribed by Dr. G.E. Soberin. Mist is unconscious and therefore not giving up any information. Mike does manage to get Soberin's location through his answering service, and taking a not especially wild guess, he goes to the beach house from his earlier encounter with Ivello, Charlie, and Sugar. Dr. Soberin, who's played by Albert Decker, is packing to leave. He talks to Lily Carver, who, by the way, her real name is Gabrielle, and we learn she was employed by Soberin to get the key from Christina and to keep an eye on Mike Hammer. Gabrielle wants half, her half, of whatever's in the box. Soberin tries to deter her, saying, well, it really can't be divided, so she just shoots him instead. Before dying, he says he'll tell her where to bring the box, but he begs her not to open it, and then he dies. Mike enters the room and is also shot, but not fatally. He demands to know where Velda is located. Gabrielle opens the box and the radioactive 
whatever that's in sh- inside shines out and sets her and the room ablaze. Mike staggers to his feet and finds Velda. She helps him leave the house and run along the beach. The house endures a series of explosions. Mike and Velda make their way to, into the surf and they turn and watch as the house is finally consumed by fire. So that answers my question. Which version did you watch? <laughs> Because in the original version that was released to theaters, Mike and Velda do not make it out of the house. Mm-hmm. Everybody dies. Now, uh, that's the rare case, I think, when a studio or possibly production code imposed ending is more bleak <laughs> than what was actually supposed to be the end but anyway so kiss me deadly is based on a novel by mickey spillane now mickey spillane um wrote a lot of novels and short stories uh but the novels involved the protagonist of this movie mike hammer and Splane was writing in the tradition of the hard-boiled private detective, which also intertwines a lot with film noir. Whether it's a genre or a style is an argument for a whole nother episode. So we're not going to get into that right now. But you know, it does have a, it does have a lot in common with film noir, the hard-boiled detective. And arguably, the first major uh, respected writer in the hard-boiled detective genre was Dashiell Hammett. And then from him came, or after him, came Raymond Chandler. And the best-selling one of those, on the other hand, was um, Mickey Spillane. Now... Whereas, for me anyway, there is an art to Hammett's writing, and there is also an art to Chandler's writing, even though I think that he does get a little mannered at times. And also, while both of both the writers, um, you know, they did not... They were not out to write Shirley, Sherlock Holmes-type stories. They strove for authenticity and, um, you know, being, as uh, Chandler would praise um, Hammett for, uh, write scenes that seem never to have been written before and also as uh, Chandler said Hammett gave murder back to the kind of people (laughs) that commit it for reasons not just to provide a corpse Um, Spillane well he went over and at least as far as I'm concerned he went overboard on the mannered part Not, not only that but his character Mike Hammer did a lot of unscrupulous things, even more so than you know Sam Spade, or actually the Continental Op is Hammett's most famous detective. 
or Philip Marlowe. And the code that he followed uh, seemed to be very much um, commies are bad, uh, druggies are bad. And um, if you thought Hammer and Chandler had a um, somewhat, or maybe not somewhat, sexist attitude toward women, who boy does Spillane uh, beat them uh, <laughs> by a country mile? Even though it must be said, um, Spillane does have some have a woman fans of his writing, and you know basically coming out during the Red Scare of the 1950s where, you know, it seemed not just in Hollywood, but throughout America, um, everyone was suspected of being a communist unless you were to the right of John Wayne or Joe McCarthy. That was a... That was showed Spillane to be a man in tune with his times, as whatever critics thought of him, he was a very popular writer. And that basically is the antithesis of everything that director Robert Aldrich and screenwriter A.I. Bezerides were trying to do with this movie. Whereas in the novel, and I'm going to get uh, talk a little bit more about the differences and the similarities between the novel and film. Whereas in the novel, uh, Hammer is seen as a heroic figure, and actually he has a friend friendly relationship with um, the lieutenant character that he talks to. The movie sees him as anything but. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And in fact, you, you've got the the um, the contentious relationship with the police in general. And but the other thing is like this this Mike Hammer he strikes me as a little bit dumb too, which is not you. I like Hammer is usually I'm like he's tough and he's ruthless and yeah he does you know some unscrupulous things as you say. But he's not usually as as clueless as he seems to be in this particular story. Okay. Well, I've only read Kiss Me Deadly, and that was enough for me. <laughs> so uh, I can't comment on how he is portrayed. But what I can talk about is the differences aside from the fact that Hammer that uh, Hammer is decidedly unheroic here, uh, whereas he wasn't in the novel. In the novel, Hammer was trying to bust a drug ring, hmm. whereas in the movie, of course, he's trying to find that black box. And the novel is also set in New York City, whereas the movie is set in Los Angeles. And um, there are a couple of character names that are changed as well. And the um, book of poetry by Christina Rossetti was added in by Bezzarides to provide a clue 
about um, the box. But there are a lot of elements as far as the plot goes that are pretty similar. You know, Soberin, or I don't remember if that's the guy's name in the novel, but he is a bad guy. He is the main bad guy in that in the novel as well. And um, Cloris Leachman's character dies. Um, Christina dies um, early on, just as she does in the movie. And Lily, or the woman pretending to be Lily, reveals herself as um, as a pretender at, and deadly at the end of the novel as well. And there's also the relate the good relationship that Hammer has with um, his mechanic, although that's one of the characters' names that was changed. But in addition to the fact that you know this is about the you know about a bomb or a box containing nuclear waste and instead of drugs. And the fact that Hammer is a um, is an anti-hero, um, to put it politely, mm-hmm. in the movie, and he's not in the novel. The major change is, between the novel and the movie is, at least from what I can gather from Kiss Me Deadly, and from what Spillane has talked about in movies in um, interviews. And as you may remember him, uh, if you were um, a sports fan in the late 70s, when he appeared in a series of commercials for Miller Lite, along with um, the actress who was in the original version of the producers, Lee Meredith, uh, but his dialogue was very punchy, um, very rat-a-tat. Um, Spillane apparently started writing out for comic books before he became a novelist. And you can tell that he tell that that punchy style that was in comic books of the 40s, certainly carried over in his writing, at least for Kiss Me Deadly. Whereas Bezerides in the movie uses a lot of elliptical dialogue. You know, the scene between Soberin and Gabrielle near the end, when she's trying to ask him what's in the box, and he's making all these illusions to Lot's wife and Pandora and Cerberus and and, uh, things like that. And he's not the only one, you know, that's sort of typical of the type of dialogue that he's writing writing about. Even Velda gets into the act when... Um, Mike is uh, meeting her in one time and she um, talks about, you know, oh, you want to avenge the death of your dear friend. How touching, how sweet, how nicely it justifies your quest for the great what's it. (laughs) So it's 
So this is not a very direct movie. This has, even though people's actions may be clear, what they say isn't always. And that helps add to the mystery element of the movie and I think is one of the strongest elements of the movie. Right. I mean, calling it the great what's-it on Velma's part, it kind of makes sense because really through the better part of this film, Mike has no idea what he's looking for. He just knows that there's something that people are after, that it's kind of important, it might be valuable. And so, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Toward the end, when you've got Dr. Soberin, it's, it's actually a little bit frustrating because, you, I mean, he's just kind of delaying the conversation a little bit and, and dragging it out. And, and he's speaking to, you know, we'll call her Lily here, but, 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 we, we, but he's speaking to Lily in a way that, that she isn't understanding, right? She's not getting the metaphors that he's throwing at her and he never gives up on it. He just keeps like, he goes with Lot's wife and he goes with Cerberus and he goes, you know, and it's, and it's, it becomes the situation where because he is talking so circuitously, he actually gets to die before he's saying what he's supposed to say, which, okay, fine. But the fact is, if you're there, you're in that position, you know, you're dying, shut up about Cerberus already and say what you need to say. And so that, to me at least, felt a little bit out of place in, in that particular case. But the rest of it, yeah, I, I can kind of go mm -hmm. with, with it. I, but it's still true to character. Mm -hmm. You know, I can see how it's frustrating as a plot device, but it's true to character. I mean, he taught in the other scenes where he hear him, he talks like that. Yeah, still. yeah he does. So it's consistent with him. You know, it's, um, you know, and it can also be seen the fact that he's saying still speaking in metaphors after she shot him is a way of saying is a, his uh, F you to her. I guess. So, okay, but but it just I don't know. It just me. it just got that feeling of like, you know, the treasure is buried in the oh, plop, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. It did not it's, bother me. It's a all. nit. Now, I, I, it's a nit. I'm not, you know. Now. I will admit there is one part about Hammer here that is relatively progressive. Um, and when we're talking about um, studio era Hollywood movies. And that's the way that he treats the characters who are either below him in status or the same of Pema's status. And that includes, you know, the um, people of color mm -hmm. in the movie or people who are not, you know, wasps. You know, Nick is supposed to be Greek and he's got a great relationship with him. But then after Nick dies and Mike is drowning his sorrows in the bar... Um, you've got an um, African-American bartender and an African-American singer. Uh, the singer, by the way, is played by Kitty White, who'd worked with Duke Ellington, among others. And can I tell you, and, just like how weirdly talented she is, that in some shots she's standing at a microphone and singing, and in other shots she's sitting at the piano and singing. Okay. <laughs> That's, that is a convention of studio-era musicals. Deal with it. Okay. But or 
movies with musical numbers in them, I should say. But anyway, um, but, you know, he treats those characters well. And then also, of course, the character of um, Eddie. Wando Hernandez, who we're gonna t- who we're gonna touch on briefly in our next episode. You know, when he says uh, he's not talking about what Mike wants to find out about because he doesn't want to end up dead, Mike doesn't threaten him at all. He just lets it go. Mm-hmm. So that is very unusual even in a post-world war ii studio era when hollywood was finally starting to treat people of color in a non-stereotypical way Um, this was pretty progressive true i mean they are playing characters or types of characters that are familiar characters for African Americans, you know, the boxing coach, the or gym owner, the bartender, the singer, but they're treated with respect by Hammer and obviously because Aldrich and Bezerides uh, were left leaning. Um, they wanted to do that, and Aldrich had final cuts, so he was able to do it. Um, that's pretty impressive for a studio era movie. Sure, and compare it to the scenes where first where he's being stalked on the street and he buys the popcorn to 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 buy a little bit of time and and beats that guy up and the the right. the guy who runs the Hollywood Athletic Club, the attendant there, slaps him around. The doctor, he beats him up and well he, he's you know yelling at him and where is the thing and slams his hand in the drawer and there was somebody else and I can't remember where it was like the, just over and over again. Where is she? Where is it? Where is it? Where yeah, is it? Well, there's also the, um, the opera singer. That's the one I'm the, thinking of. Yeah. But, but yeah, basically he those, he does, yeah, he doesn't threaten him as he smashes his records, right? He smashes the, and, he smashes the, 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 the Pavarotti record and uh, not Pavarotti. Um, he, he smashes the Pagliacci record and yes. but he, and he grabs him and he shakes him. That's that's the one I'm yeah. thinking of. But yeah, all of those guys are basically him. older white fellas. <laughs> yeah. And uh, by the way, uh, that guy is the guy who was Susan Alexander's um, opera coach in Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. uh, Fortunio Bonanova. And uh, he is not the only actor from Citizen Kane who appears in this movie. Paul Stewart, who played the um, servant who gets interviewed near the end of the movie, plays one of the bad guys, Carl Avello, here. Now, Stewart was one of Orson Welles' favorite actors. In addition to Citizen Kane, he also appeared in uh, what proved to be Wells's last movie, only re- released recently, The Other Side of the Wind. And he was in a lot of movies, and he's very good. Yeah, this this was, this was an especially busy period for him, like the, that mid-50s, 54 through 56. I mean, he worked constantly up, up until almost the end of his life. I mean, whether it was TV or movies or whatever else, but... At this point, when he's in this film, you you could use the word prolific for him because he did like four or five pictures every year for a few years. 
And he was, well, at least the ones that I've seen, he was pretty much great in all of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember him. Um, he was the first thing I saw him in after Citizen Kane, I think. He was in The Bad and the Beautiful, which is not in a movie that I love as much as other people do, but he was good in that. Um, he's good playing a good guy in Deadline USA. He plays a reporter who works for uh, the editor played by Humphrey Bogart. And he's also in what is often regarded as Elvis's best movie, King Creole. That came out a few years later. But no, he is very good. And Ralph Meeker should be given credit, of course, because even though we um, never really like Hammer and we're not supposed to, he always makes Hammer interesting. Now, he never became a big actor. This was early in his career, um, the year before, or a couple years before, he had appeared in a much different role in uh, one of Anthony Mann's uh, westerns with Jimmy Stewart, The Naked Spur, and he went on to appear in a couple of famous war movies, Paths of Glory and The Dirty Dozen. And he was in a small supporting role in a movie that we've already talked about, Winter Kills. He's the one who forces Eli Wallach to agree to be a presidential assassin. And as I said, he makes Hammer interesting and he doesn't play down his more sadistic tendencies at all. No, no, he doesn't. Now, um, speaking of movies that we've talked about before, this shares something in common with Ronan, which we talked about um, a while back in that it's a deft combination of location shooting and sets. And I think we talk about other movies too that have done that combination of location shooting and sets. All of the exteriors, when Mike is walking down the street and he's being followed, or when he goes into places from the street or things like that, or when he's driving, all of those were shot on location but all the interiors were shot on on sets. So, for example, when he's walking up the stairs to go to the apartment where Lily or Gabby is staying at, that was all shot on location. But once inside the apartment, that is a set. And credit goes to uh, set decorator Howard Bristol and cinematographer Ernest Laszlo and editor Michael Luciano for making all of that pull together so seamlessly. Yeah, I think the only place where, where location shooting kind of breaks down, believe it or not, is the opening scene with Cloris Leachman running down the street, running down the road 
And well, there's two things. One, there's a weird little continuity thing where every time we get the close up of her feet, she's down the center of the road because you can see the stripes from the street under her under her feet. Whereas in the longer shot, she's on the side of the road. But the thing I noticed also, and that's one of those things you're not really supposed to notice, is that she's always running down the same stretch of road. It's like she had to come in, like run in, stop, breathe a little bit, look for the car, wave to the car, watch it go by, and that kind of thing. And what they did was instead of just moving the camera a few feet, like, well, it would have to be the whole setup, you know, they just said, okay, go back to one and do the next bit where you run down the street and wave to the next car that comes through and watch it go by. And and you can just you can just tell she's running the same stretch of road several times before she finally jumps out in front of my camera's car. That's the only place I can think of where location shooting didn't really work out as such. But having said that, again, I'm going to call that just a nitpick because I'm the kind of guy who spots stuff like that. So I apologize well, I would, to you if it ruins your enjoyment of the film, but it was... Well, know. I would say that's possibly due to costs. Yeah. Uh, possibly due to... Um, I don't know if they decided this was going to be the opening credits scene or what. And by the way, uh, the opening credits are quite unusual. Well, I did mention that. They, do, they run upside down, basically. Not upside down, but they run yeah. backwards from top to bottom. Yeah, which means what you're getting is you know deadly kiss me rather than kiss me deadly, right? And um, you know I'm sure it's primarily for cost reasons, and of course location shooting, even in the '50s, because it's location shooting really started to um, become a thing in the post-war era. You know, they still might not have gotten all the bugs out. And then, of course, there's no, there was no CGI back then. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I make allowances for those type of things when I'm watching a movie from back then. Now, a couple of the other performances that we should mention. Uh, Albert Decker. Um, he, most of the movies that I saw him in, except for Gentleman's Agreement, when he's playing Gregory Peck's editor, um, most of the movies that I saw him in, he played bad guys. And I'm talking movies like uh, um, the first version of, of Hemingway's short story, The Killers, and um, B-movie uh, film noir, appropriately called Suspense. And then one of his last, if not his last movies, The Wild Bunch, um, he's playing villains. But, and maybe this has to do with the elliptical dialogue that he's given and the way that he delivers. I think this is his best performance as a villain. He does a good job, you know, and 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 yeah, the 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 elliptical dialogue, as we've been calling it, is it kind of it kind of adds to his, uh, just just it, it rounds him out. It's like it's it's a little bit of a thing that that gives him a specific bit of definition, and it's it's it is kind of fun to listen to. Like Another... I said, it gets it gets frustrating toward the end, but but it's. It's it's worth listening to. It it makes it a little bit fun. It makes him an interesting character. He delivers it well. And another th 
Another thing that Aldrich and Laszlo do to make him interesting and um, ambiguous until the end is that it isn't until his last scene with Gabrielle that we see his face. Right. The, all the rest of the movie, whenever we see him, we only see his feet. Mm-hmm. And that adds to the tension. And then the last actor that I wanted to talk about a little here is, of course, not Cloris Leachman, although she is very good um, in her few minutes and she makes you miss her for the rest of the movie, but Gabby Rogers as Lily or Gabrielle. Now, she didn't do much acting besides this movie. No. And apparently in an interview, um, she said that Aldrich instructed her to play the character as a lesbian, which unfortunately fits into a lot of um, you know noir tropes from the 40s and 50s. And that gay characters are made, and not just those, you know, Hitchcock used this as well, of having gay characters be evil. But at any rate, she does give a very good performance because she keeps you guessing throughout the entire movie. She does. I mean, that's that's kind of weird played as a lesbian, though. That I'm not sure what that means in the context of this particular character, especially since, A, she has really no other scenes that we see with women, you know, uh, uh, at least not nothing substantial that I can think of, and B, there are times when she, you know, throws herself at my camera, and, and you know, I understand she's playing a little bit of a role there, you know, and even at the end where she keeps saying before she shoots him, kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, you know, I, uh, I'm having a little bit of a difficult time. Like, you know, what defines this character as a lesbian in this particular film? Well, you have to remember, we're still in the production code era. You aren't allowed to show that explicitly. And even in movies where um, there have been gay characters who are playing villains in in you know, suspense-type movies like in the 1941 version of The Maltese Falcon and um, Hitchcock's North by Northwest, there's nothing really shown there either. It's all implied. Yeah. And possibly it's, you know, it's her look rather than who she interacts with. Because, of course, there's the stereotype of, uh, you know, really butch lesbians have short short hair. hair, So, you know, again, stereotype, I want to make it clear. No, I I understand that. But I'm I'm thinking, like, there weren't, unless, yeah, maybe the short hair, you know, that she had a pixie cut going on, you know maybe some of the the clothes that she was wearing but but other than that i mean there's there's not a whole lot you can hang on you know the stereotype really now uh two things that i want to bring up before we wrap this up Mm -hmm. of course uh there have been a lot of homages to the box 
Claude already mentioned one of them in uh, his plot description, and that is Pulp Fiction, where um, it's a suitcase rather than a box. And every time the suitcase gets opened, once by John Travolta and once by Tim Roth in that movie, there is a glow that is coming out of it, even though neither of them get singed. (laughs) And there's been a lot of theories that that was Tarantino's homage to Kiss Me Deadly. He has sort of waffled on it, I think. Okay. You know, he said it is, then he said it doesn't, it isn't, but anyway, another... But that's um, kind of Tarantino's thing with that briefcase, is yeah. like, he's always played coy about, it, like, what's in the briefcase, yeah. it doesn't matter what's in the briefcase. Yeah, and, uh, and another, um, speaking of coy, another <laughs> homage to it, possibly, is the boxing Barton Fink, that uh, Barton ends up getting... And unlike in Pulp Fiction or Kiss Me Deadly, where they at least open it, this one's not opened at all. And the Coen brothers, even more than Tarantino, have been uh, very coy about what's actually in it. So I guess you could argue also um, the movie Seven, where there's that constant question, what's in the box? What's in the box? And well, that is something that one of the characters the says. Box. We, we know in Seven, but it. I'm just saying that th- that line comes up in in uh, Kiss Me Deadly as well. What's okay. in the box? So th- yes. there could be an allusion to that as well. Okay. The other thing that I want to bring up before we wrap this up. Mm-hmm. Um, among, be, among other things, um, besides where the new Hollywood flourished, at least for the time, for a time, excuse me. The 1970s were also known for revisionist versions of studio genre types, most notably the Western, and we're going to talk about a revisionist Western in a future episode, possibly the most famous one, certainly my favorite one, and also the detective stories. Um, the Sherlock Holmes type story, and then also the hard-boiled type um, detective, most notably for the latter in movies like Chinatown, The Long Goodbye, and perhaps the most underrated of all those night moves directed by Arthur Penn. And I think Chinatown and night moves are both brilliant And while I wouldn't go that far about The Long Goodbye, I've come around to liking it as opposed to the first time when I saw it in my 20s, where I was like, what the hell is this? (laughs) But now I see what Altman was trying to do with that. But with all due respect to those three movies, Kiss Me Deadly got there first as Mm -hmm. far as being a revisionist private eye movie goes. Because in Chinatown and Night Moves, both of them portray their detective uh, protagonists as thinking they know what's going on, but really not having shown by the end that they really did not have a bloody clue. And again, Kiss Me Deadly got there first. 
to be sure. Do you have anything that you want to add before we wrap this up? No, I think I have once again exhausted my notes here. All right. So coming up immediately after this, we'll be talking about Starship Troopers. That's happening right away in your podcast feed. So stick around. Stick around.